Since 1971, Beauty O Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. It is a This Month in Birding Week, so I will get you to that as soon as we can. Just a quick note that if you cannot get enough of American Birding Association content, my ABA colleague Greg Neese and I host a bi-weekly What's This Bird Live program on ABA social medias in particular Facebook and YouTube at 1 p.m. Eastern time every other Friday. Our last one was this past week. So our next one is not this week, not tomorrow, if you're listening to this on the first day you get it. But the next one, that's September 8th, perhaps you will join us. As an aside, if you're interested in all of the things the ABA is doing, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, Flight Calls, on our website. Head over to aba.org and scroll to the bottom of any of the pages that have aba.org at the beginning of it. And you can be able to find the flight calls sign up. We don't sell your email or any of that stuff. You just get birding content if you like it every week. So let's go to the show. We welcome back Jody Allaire, Jordan Rudder, and Brody Cass Talbot to this month in birding for August, all after this week's rare birds. <laughs> This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of August 2023. Only one first record report this week in Wyoming, a state that we don't get to talk about all that often here. A rough in Albany County represents a first, unfortunately at a site that is not accessible to birders. Rough is one of the more common Eurasian vagrant shorebirds in the ABA area with multiple birds reported every year, primarily on the coasts. Records in the interior west are far less common, and many of those likely represent birds that have vagrated to North America a long time ago and just spend the rest of their lives migrating in the Americas with our resident shorebirds. So far as I can tell, Wyoming was the last U.S. state to record a rough. Yes, that does include Hawaii. So now all 50 have rough records. For Canada, the only province or territory without a rough is Northwest Territories, and then only because none of it was split in 1999, taking its one and only rough record from 1950 with it. Those are the recent highlights, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the rare bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and in ABA community. It is the end of August, the end of the meteorological summer, and time again for this month in birding, a roundtable discussion with birding friends to talk about some of the more interesting bird-related stories of the last few weeks. We've got an all-timer this time around, though I think I say that every time, uh, bringing back some friends for another go-around. Let's introduce them, shall we, in alphabetical order, our friend from Birds Canada, where he is the director of community engagement and the producer of the Warblers podcast. It is Jody Allaire. Hello, Jody. Hey, Nate. Hey, everyone. Really excited to be back. Good to see you. And from the American Bird Conservancy, Bird Names for Birds, and wherever awesome birds are being enjoyed and discussed, which is frequently on this podcast. It is Jordan Rudder. Welcome back, Jordan Rudder. Hello. Good to see you. And from Portland, Audubon, representing the far western reaches of this podcast, at least. Back again, Brody Cast Talbot. Hi, Brody. Hey, Nate. 
it's great to have all three of you here before we were talking earlier. I think this might be a combination that I put together, uh, but I'm happy to do it again because you all are uh, three great bird people out there. And so I, I, I thought a lot about how to kind of start this uh, podcast, but I'm going to just kind of start it the way I always start conversations uh, with my with my birding friends. Um, have you seen anything interesting? What is the most interesting bird-related thing you have seen this summer here as we are at the end of summer? So I had a chimney swift nest in one of my chimneys in the new wow, house, which is super exciting. Awesome. Yeah. I might have freaked out a little bit. Yeah, did it make a lot of noise? <laughs> well, unfortunately, the nest failed. Oh, but well. I'm hoping that because they came this year, they'll be back next year and I'll be ready and we'll be all set up. It'll be like National Geographic in the chimney yeah. with the GoPro. GoPro and, oh, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. absolutely. But I never thought that I would ever have a house that had a nesting chimney swift and yeah. so i'm i'm beside myself that is so cool how do that you just... prepare your chimney for a chimney swift's arrival good vibes you okay, know i hear it yeah all right like <laughs> yeah that's enough that's enough it's very vibe-based family yeah yeah maybe some way of making sure that the the uh, babies don't accidentally fledge into your living room yeah that's a good yes. one too I've yes heard stories about that yeah it is a not active chimney for the record. So there's no fire yeah. hazard. Well, certainly there's not no in the summer, at least. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, that's a great one. I'm going to jump on that and say that my, you know, I do lots of birding, obviously, and I see lots of fun birds and some rare birds. But probably my most exciting thing is so there's a chimney in the house next to mine. So when I do all of my yard birding in my backyard, it's the house I always look at. And they didn't nest in that chimney last year, but they nested in it this year. And Earlier this summer, I noticed what seemed like three parents coming to the chimney. And I have heard that they do occasionally have a little helper swift, uh, which I thought was pretty neat. And then about a week ago, I noticed another, uh, I, I started hearing begging again. It had been about two months. But uh, even just this morning, I heard these Vox's swifts. Uh, they, you know, they're quiet until right when the parent flies in and mm-hmm. then they all beg really loud. And so they're apparently double brooding in my neighbor's chimney, which is really exciting for me. Yeah, that's Because cool. also right now, you know, like Portland is, uh, Portland Audubon and Portland's famous for uh, this huge boxes, mm-hmm. swift chimney roost that we have at Chapman Elementary. And I think I've seen the and, YouTube videos. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and which is my alma mater. So I'm going to give a shout out to Chapman Elementary. <laughs> but uh but yeah, so we already are starting to get like 500 birds coming through, migrating. And my yeah. neighbor's chimney is like, no, we're still, we're still uh, nesting here. So huh. kind of fun. When do they peak? When does the Chapman Elementary Swift colony reach its uh, apex? Generally, I think about the third week of September. They're sort yeah. of slow so build. Up. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Very fun. I don't have any Swift content. Uh, no, no, yeah. no, no Swifties. Swift. I mean, she's on the she's on the Airs tour. We've got nesting Swifts in uh, <laughs> in various houses on both sides of the both sides of the continent. This is a yeah, it's a Swift summer for sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I'll I'll add not Swift content, but I oh, think okay. one of the most interesting things from the past month, anyway, is that we've had this really cool flight of red crossbills. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving through central Alberta and it was uh, you know it's been it's been going on for a bit it's actually petered out a bit now but the interesting 
part of this Red Cross bill flight moving east is that it's a huge flight of birds from from BC, Alberta, uh, south of the border as well, moving east, like all the way through Ontario and Quebec. And they represent a few different types. And mm-hmm. so within my own neighborhood, I was getting uh, type two, which is I get quite regularly, and the type four, which was a new one uh, for me. And those are the, the Douglas fir yeah, uh, the, red like cross the, bills. And they the have far, very far Western ones, right? Those yeah, yeah they're really neat. And they've yeah. got a very, and I'm, I'm like a lot of folks just still learning uh, cross bill type calls, but type Eternally. four yeah, no, have you. a really, really cool, distinctive call. And, hmm. uh, and yeah, that was like for, for several weeks, I was getting them all around the neighborhood, both types, which was uh, pretty fun, but they've totally cleared out now. I haven't hmm. had uh, a cross bill now in I think over a week. Out here. Wow. So yeah, so that was pretty fun. Yeah. I have another nesting bird story as well. Um, I have lots of birds that nest in my vicinity, like on my house. Uh, typically house finches, they're the ones that nest in the eaves right, under, right by the front door. But this year, um, I had a Carolina wren manage to find a way into my garage. And I have kind of taken out the parts, the initial leavings of Carolina wren's nests you know, when I leave my garage open for more than two hours, they start building a nest somewhere in there. Um, and this time, from what I could figure, there's a little tiny gap that could not be more than three quarters of an inch high, where the lining at the bottom of my garage door doesn't go all the way to the pavement uh, of my driveway. And so there's this little tiny, maybe three inches by three quarters of an inch gap that I think they were able to get in through like sneak through on their bellies and then they started building a nest up in some you know some old cardboard box that i had on my top shelf in the garage and i i noticed it getting bigger and bigger i was like like i'm not leaving my garage open like i these birds how are they getting in and i finally saw one sneak out through there so fast forward i kind of kept an eye on it um they managed i guess to lay eggs fledge young um my family and i left for a week to go to missouri to visit my folks and when we came home, I was like, well, the, the wrens are going to love this. We're going to be gone for a week. They'll have the, the run of the garage. And when we came home, um, we parked uh, the van in the garage and we were getting out and unloading and all this stuff. And my wife points out that, oh, yeah, look, birds have been here. And there was a line of bird poop all the way down the middle of my garage from where they had sat on the uh, metal thing that holds the actual contraption, the garage door opener uh, to the roof of the garage. And it was clear that the babies had been sitting in a row <laughs> on that piece of awesome. metal. And they were gone by the time we got back. So uh, they managed That's to amazing. bled. I don't know how many chicks. Um, I don't know. They usually get like four or five. They can, they can put out a bunch. But uh, they were successful. Go figure. And uh, I only saw them a few times. But uh, congrats to those. Just those Carolina Wrens. You did it. You did it. I never thought That's you could amazing. do it, but they did it. Yeah. That's next level fledging right there. It, it like really you is. You got to jump off the thing and then crawl yeah. under the thing. Yeah. I guess they're yeah. safe from predators though. So, hey. I don't think anything could have gotten in there. Yeah. <laughs> that happened to our garage too, but we have a cupola, that uh-huh. little like weather vane thing. And okay. same, they came in through that. So instead they came of, in through that. Which is just amazing because then the birds had to learn to fly to like get up yeah. and out and everything. Yeah. And they would respond to eiders like barking and stuff, which was oh, super really? cute. That's funny. They're, they're, so, they're so weird. I, like, I, don't, I imagine that what it must have been like for that pair of Carolina wrens to sneak through that tiny little hole and manage to find this massive <laughs> two-car garage um, with the, you know, their pick of various places to, to start building a nest. 
So yeah, they did it. Shout out to the breeding bird atlases of Maryland and North Carolina as well. There you go. Yep. I should have put them in. I need to. Maybe I'll go back and do that. <laughs> Not that they need more Carolina in nests. They're pretty common, but still. I want to start with a question for you all. I hope I'm allowed to ask some questions. Of course. Absolutely. Do you feel like you've had the same favorite bird ever since you became a birder or does it sort of mature along with you? I that hate is, that question. That is such yeah. a, the worst question. <laughs> <laughs> the favorite no. bird question. Well, I'm not asking what your favorite bird is, no, no, just, yeah, yeah. I mean, but has you're allowed it, to say that changed. too. Yeah. I think it's changed. It's changed. Yeah. I, as a lifelong birder, I do not like the, the question of like, what's your favorite bird? Because there's, there's too many. Why are you going to play true. favorites? Yeah. Don't you want to see them all? Don't you want to travel? Like, I go for birds that remind me of certain people. Like I have more of that memory, like emotional connection to different species rather than like, oh, you're my favorite. I think wow. we did a question of the month a few uh, mm. months ago that was what bird describes you. And I, I think Jody may have been on that on that panel. I wasn't on that one. Oh, um, okay. But I think you had one for me. Yeah. I think you may have. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. That's why I remember it. I forget what it was. It was it might have been Clark's Nutcracker. Clark's Nutcracker. You... Bingo. Yeah. And it's still, it's perfect. Yeah. Wow. What does that say about his impression of you? <laughs> yeah, I'm still thinking about friendly. that one. What, what, yeah, like to Christmas. cash food around. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, yeah. got food. Um, I have like a. I always just sort of have a favorites list, Brody. You know, and interestingly, two of the species that are on that list are two birds we're going to talk about during the podcast. Well, that's or yeah, that's teasers. that's why I brought it up. My when I first started birding. Um, the, you know, my first favorite bird, uh, was the American kestrel. There was, uh, a lot of them where I was living. And then really what cemented it was I went to the Columbia Gorge Discovery Museum, great museum in the Dallas, Oregon, and they have an education bird program and they had a kestrel, a male kestrel that had a perch at the front desk of the museum. Hmm. And on the day that I walked in the human that I think also had a desk there was like in the bathroom or something. So it's just this Kestrel at this desk staring at me like, can I help you? And, and it, just being able to see it up close as opposed to like really far away. It's just such a stunning animal that, um, I just fell very in love with them. So, uh, so I was really interested to see this story come out in the New York times uh, who this summer has, you know, the New York Times has like fully jumped on the birding bandwagon, which mm -hmm, has been yeah. great because they've got incredible resources. To, I think it's a partnership with Cornell, if I'm you're, not mistaken. Yes, you're correct. Yeah. So, uh, so they did a story. One of the stories they did recently was about the mystery of the vanishing kestrels, um, and uh, which I, I think is somewhat surprising to some folks because this is one of our more abundant raptors, you know, in North America. And, um, but they have declined, you know, by about 50% in 50 years, which is pretty worrisome. And I guess, uh, that's, um, more represented on the East coast, although we're still seeing a lot of declines on the West coast. And the, uh, the frustrating part of the article was <clears throat> they get into, you know, what the presumed causes might be. I thought it was interesting that they listed the first one as, so it's seven possible causes. And the first one they listed was the surge in Cooper's hawk populations, which, you know, I, I have my reservations about that. Um, particularly that 
I typically, you know, I tend to find those two birds in different habitats. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, they also had change in wintering habitat, which might make more sense on the East Coast. In Oregon, a lot of our kestrels are, are resident birds. So maybe on the East Coast, they're going somewhere else we know less about. Um, agricultural land changes, uh, insect declines, which of course, kestrels eat a lot of dragonflies, grasshoppers, and they really talk a lot about grasshoppers in this article. Um, and then rodenticides, which I remember leading a raptor trip, uh, just maybe just this last winter. And as we're out in this field, the Willamette Valley has, um, is a huge producer of grass seed. And so we're out in this field that is just full of raptors. And we see this young guy drive by in a four wheeler and he asks us what we're doing. And we tell him, and then we ask him what he's doing. And he's like, Oh, I'm just spraying, you know, rodenticide all over all these fields because of all the mice and it was really hard to to be there and watch that happen and mm-hmm. yeah um and then they also mentioned neonicotinoids so this is yeah. the uh, most abundant um type of pesticide uh, that we use not just in in north america but also the country uh, the world at large uh, and climate change and then at the end the article the author just sort of shrugs their shoulders and says who knows um, and it's, you know, probably some combination of all seven, but this article really kind of got me, uh, yeah, fired up because, uh, you know, uh, the American bird conservancy, the wonderful organization Jordan works for just released their, uh, report back in July about how we know what neonicotinoids are doing to birds. Well, we know a lot, we don't know it all, but everything that we do know is bad. And uh, birds are literally directly eating seeds that are treated with these things and dying from them. Their food populations are drying up. They're um, bioaccumulating these things from eating insects. Uh, They're, um, you know, it's polluting our waterways. And yeah, it's just really frustrating to see this uh, slow motion ecological collapse as we as we uh, refrain from taking real action on it. So. It's an article that uh, that I encourage people to read. There's lots of cute pictures of kestrels and baby kestrels, and and it's just frustrating that the article is sort of like, oh, who knows what it is? And it's like, well, there are a couple of these that we have the power to address, mm-hmm. uh, and I know that some states and some cities like Portland have done a little bit to try and regulate neonicotinoid use, but you know the entire European Union banned neonicotinoids and. They are still a thriving uh, place. <laughs> they, they have not failed as as a uh, as a continent. Yeah, in the United States, uh, especially, I think we've got a lot more to do on on that specific issue. I feel like I heard a lot more about neonics a decade ago. I've not heard about them in a long time, and I don't know whether or not. I guess in my head, I thought, well, people are doing something about them. They're you know, easing off the use of these of these pesticides, but I guess that's not the case. Yeah, so if if I can follow up on the ABC report that Brody talked about. So ABC originally did that 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and so then Hardy Kern and Pierre Minot were the two that actually led on this new report to say it's been 10 years what what's changed with the situation and everything. And unfortunately, it's the exact same. It is a new report, but it's the exact same basically. And so, you know, it's time for the United States 
and a lot of other countries, but especially the U.S., to get its act together and really figure out what are our goals? What do we want to do? Are there alternatives? Yes, there are that we can do instead of relying on neonics, right? You know, not saying that we need to follow the EU's lead necessarily, but they're showing that it can be done. Um, they're showing that, you know, we live in an ecosystem and we should remember that and put that first rather than put big agriculture and the money and all of the monocultures of agriculture forward instead of, you know, the pollinators and the birds that so desperately need our help right now. I think the the Kestrel story is an interesting one and it sort of encapsulates like modern conservation challenges. You know, I think now I'll, I'll fully say American Kestrel, like, was the, if not one of the, my spark birds as a kid, you know, vivid memory, seeing a kestrel on the way to hockey and just being like blown away, seeing a, you know, seeing a male kestrel for the first time. You're like, mm -hmm. what the, it was our, is that it was the ABA's very first bird of the year for, for that reason. We had a wow. absolutely gorgeous, yeah. uh, painting of a, of a American kestrel by, uh, Louise Zemaitis. And that made the ABA bird of the year program that people look forward to so much. I still have the sticker. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was awesome. That's impressive. Um, Those are not high quality stickers. <laughs> <laughs> I keep it in the dark. Yeah, actually, yeah, really. you don't have to. It's on, it's on one of my birding paraphernalia. Um, yeah. it, it's so the you know so it's just amazing bird, right? And certainly you know, boy, if everyone could see an American kestrel up close, I think, boy, if that doesn't turn you into a birder, I don't know. You probably have no soul or something. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like, it's crazy, but uh, they're stunning. And you know, I think old school. You know, if we look back at the conservation challenges and successes of the past, it was this like linear relationship of like DDT and bioaccumulation and food webs and bald eagle peregrine osprey, you know, that type of thing. And now we've got gr whole groups of birds where there's all sorts of things happening simultaneously that's affecting mm -hmm. them. And I think mm -hmm. the story, I, I think it's quite honest, um, you know, what the researchers saying this is like, yeah, it's probably a combination of things. And, and that's, that's true. And, you know, looking at from a Canadian perspective, we've got all these groups of birds that are in serious decline. And, and two of the biggest declining groups are aerial insectivores, you know, to, regardless of genus or family, all anything that flies around and eats insects in the air are declining across the board in Canada and the United States. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and grassland birds, Right. And I I've always think of American kestrel, American kestrels sitting yeah. right in between right in those middle. two, yeah. right? Perfect. Venn diagram. It is yeah, the overlapping. Absolutely. Point. Grassland yeah. and grassland edge, right? But grassland and aerial insectivore. And open I, country. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they're getting hit on, on all sides with, with that. And, and, uh, you know, I sort of have my own, own thoughts, but certainly. Change in insect abundance, change in land use, and definitely uh, pesticide use are probably the big factors here, you know, with Kestrel. And Kestrels are different from, from even from other raptors in, 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 uh, in North America in terms of mm -hmm. how tied to open areas and, and insects and fields that they, they're really tied to those compared to other raptors. So I think, yeah, it's a tough one. I actually really am quite concerned about American Kestrels. It is interesting. You know, you look at the, in the past, the, the story of DDT and its ban and the subsequent recovery of a lot of those fish eating birds. Um, you think that something could, it could happen with American Kestrel too, if you address those issues. It feels like it's, it's very much a, of a piece with those other raptors and that the same sort of success story could be in its future if you, you know, solve the pressing issue of, you know, killing off its, its food, its prey. 
um, which is a big problem for birds. I don't know if people know that. That's a big conservation tip, killing off a, an organism's prey. Not good. Not good for the organism. Pro tip. Yeah. And, and I don't doubt that it's, that it's complex and there's a lot of factors, but I feel like when you've got a lot of factors and two of them seem like there are tangible <laughs> yeah. solutions in your right. grasp, then yeah. you at least uh, address those and then see what's happening. See where you are. Yep. 100%. Well, it shows how broken the system is, though, right? Because, like, to really help kestrels and talk about neonics, we're talking about federal legislation from EPA. Mm -hmm. We're talking about redoing big ag and how that all happens. Like, I think we've just lost so much of our connection to our environment that this is where we're ending up. And now we have to do everything retroactively. You know, it's it's the reason farm to table became such a big thing, right? Because you wanted to really have that flow and connection. And now we need to do that again birds it's it's mind-boggling that we're in this situation um it's also mind-boggling that folks don't realize it sounds silly but air is habitat too right and so talking about climate change talking about wildfires and smoke talking about all of these impacts on aerial insectivores at large mm -hmm. the air column is habitat because that's where they live that's what they need to survive that's so we can't yeah. yeah so we can't overlook again all of these things aren't in a vacuum. They're all connected. Just to try and put a, I, I know that a, a lot of these challenges can seem really daunting and, and at a federal level, federal movement is so hard in the United States, but mm -hmm. you know, there are also a lot of good examples of, uh, of regional, local uh, successes in this. So Portland Audubon lobbied with um, Center for Biological Diversity uh, about 10 years ago, a number of years ago, to, to, to at least ban the city of Portland from using them. And, and that was a local success that we had. And, and right now, Minnesota is working really hard to regulate these things better. So there are these opportunities for victories um, if, if uh, interested parties stand up. Absolutely. And we can't forget that, again, because everything's connected, there is certain legislation right now that folks can take action on that are more geared towards either pollinators, not birds, uh, meaning insects, or there's legislation for human health impacts of different uh, neonics or other pesticides. And those things then help birds, right? Mm -hmm. So we can't think that, again, everything's in a silo. It all is connected. You, you all have been birding for a very long time. Um, have you all seen a decline in American kestrels? Yes. Yeah. I guess I have too. I'd, I'd never know whether to ascribe it to, um, you know, development in my county. Uh, American kestrel is increasingly a difficult bird to find where I live, but it, my county is increasingly urbanizing. Um, uh, when I go out to the eastern part of the state, the coastal plain, I still see quite a few kestrels. And so it's hard to, you know, exactly put a number as to how many I see regularly, because I don't, I don't go out there regularly. I still, when I'm driving across Eastern North Carolina, I'll see a dozen kestrels or so. I have no way to quantify that as to determine whether that's a significant decrease or, or what people would have seen 15, 20 years ago. I, I don't know. I realized I was nodding my head when you asked that question and people can hear me <laughs> nod. <Good> audio, uh, <laughs> audio uh, medium. Yes. <laughs> But yeah, I, you know, out in central Oregon where I was living um, when I first started birding, uh, it's it's just it's miles and miles of of wheatland that mm -hmm. um, is not getting developed, and still it feels like anecdotally it feels like there's half as many as there were, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, dozens years that. ago. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, I grew up in southern Ontario, and it's it's the same story. You know, they were far more common uh, when I was a kid, and mm. and I think you know, maybe just try to put a bow on this, but I think this is uh, one of the elements of this, of this story 
about the Kestrels that I thought was really interesting was about, you know, people wanting to help. They were putting up boxes. They were doing box monitoring and banding the birds. And they realized, you know, they've got these boxes, they've got cavities for them. And then birds just stopped showing up, you know, and they were thinking, you know, maybe there's a productivity decline over time, which would certainly make sense to me. Um, and, you know, this is an issue where it's, it's more than just, uh, you know, setting aside a bit of habitat or putting up boxes. Like there actually needs to be, you know, political will to make some changes mm-hmm. here uh, to make, to, to help recover these birds. And, and this is not something that, you know, the United States should be doing alone or Canada should be doing alone. You know, this is something we all should be thinking of North America as one, you know, holistic ecosystem, which it is. And we should be doing these joint policies like back in the day <laughs> when mm-hmm. we used to like take these things, these environmental concerns, I don't know, I'm not going to say more seriously, but we need to take a holistic approach and come up with these policies right across the board mm-hmm. to help things. Because just helping them on one side of the board or the other mm-hmm. is, isn't going to solve the problem. Doesn't either. do anything. Yeah. No. Jody, the clinal variation of Brody and Jordan. <laughs> right in the middle. That's right. From the front range of the Rockies. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. It's where it's supposed to be. <laughs> That's right. It's uh, just full circle on this That's podcast. Right. Yeah. Um, right. So really excited to talk about also one of my favorite birds, the Canada Jay. Mm-hmm. Um, love, love, love this bird. When I was a kid, still love this bird. Like who doesn't love Canada Jays? Like they're, they're amazing. Fantastic. They're personable. They're smart. They're beautiful. I love them. Uh, so yeah fun to talk about this bird and actually and maybe before i even get into it the very first bird research project i ever did growing up was on canada jays is that right I was in high school mm. yeah like uh i lived just like about an hour from the petroglyphs region i grew up in peterborough it's south of algonquin park and there's this area called petroglyphs provincial park amazing birding location central ontario shout out ontario birders um and th- it had the southernmost Canada jays in Ontario, one of the southernmost populations that we had in Canada. And I used to, I knew they were there. So I did this like project. I remember reading about how they cache food. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went up there and just like took a whole bunch of cheese and crackers and like ham and like cut them up in little pieces. And I would like <laughs> count all the places they would go and I would get them to like, you know, take the crackers and cheese from my knees and, and stuff and just ran around like a crazy kid. <laughs> That's you know, a fantastic project. Oh, it was That's so amazing. much fun. Yeah. And, uh, and I wrote it up, pen and paper, wrote it up. And, uh, and, and through that, I, I, I knew already that there was research being done up on Algonquin Park on, mm-hmm. on Canada Jays. And, and I got in touch with uh, Dan Strickland, who was one of the co-authors of the paper that I'm just going to talk about. And, uh, and I remember like mailing Dan my, my assignment, like I stuffed it in an envelope and I mailed it to him. And I'm sure it was like terrible, terrible, but, um, <laughs> but I got to go out. He invited me up regardless and, um, always super thankful for Dan for, for that. And I, I got to go up to Algonquin and like help him out, um, up in the park and follow and see his cool work, which is really awesome. So always been a soft spot for that, for that bird. Um, so what I'm going to talk about is a paper that was recently published by uh, a new Birds Canada colleague of mine, happy to say, Dr. Matthew Fierst. Um, who I just met for the first time a couple of weeks ago. Really excited to have him on the Birds Canada team. Uh, and his paper with co- with uh, several co-authors was early life sibling conflict in Canada Jays has lifetime fitness consequences. Oh man! And I think we all know 
right? They, they've got a really interesting, like, behavior, mm-hmm. like, behaviorally fascinating. Like, they nest in crazy cold March snow. You know, they nest in the winter, right? And, uh, and one of the reasons they do that is so that when they fledge their chicks, they can maximize all their time spring, summer, fall, in caching enough food to survive the tough, you know, Canadian boreal winters, right? And yes, realize mm. they're in a few spots in the States as well, but, um, you know, it's sort of the northern boreal uh, weather. And they, uh, and people often know that they, they keep usually a fledgling from, uh, from the nesting season usually hangs around with the parents throughout the year. So what this study got into was the specific interactions of the siblings, which is really fascinating. And uh, what they looked at was what, what were the implications of the dominant sibling that ends up uh, driving out the young ones. And so this happens about six weeks of age, and the dominant sibling just says, okay, that's it. And all the other siblings are forcibly driven out of the territory. And so that one sibling can have their parents and the stocked fridge and the free Wi-Fi all to himself, right? Yeah. Or herself. Um, and- Wasn't this the plot of Step Brothers? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's like this dynamic is very familiar to me uh, as uh, <laughs> I, I have a sibling. I know how this works. <laughs> okay, but but I'm the one that's going to a family reunion in Ontario, Canada next week with yeah. a lot of siblings. Are you gonna Are you gonna fight for uh, dominance among the other siblings, Jordan? Um, if so, maybe not back. me, but Gabriel, yeah. but I'm definitely like bracing myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do not have siblings. So I find all this quite fascinating. There you go. Yes. Yeah. Um, all very, very interesting. And so the thing I like about this study is that it really got into tracking what are the outcomes to the ejected juveniles and the dominant juveniles, right? And this is like, this is a question I've had myself, like, you know, how does this impact them? And so here are the results, right? Um, so the uh, ejected juveniles is about 80% mortality, right? And they've got some fantastic data. That's about 58 years of nesting data wow. in Algonquin Park. Um, and, uh, they have tons of radio tracking data as well, uh, looking at these birds. So a fan, like a really long researched bird here in Algonquin Park, right? Really one of the longest research projects around, in fact, of any bird. Um, so, but here's some other really interesting things. Uh, there's no benefit to the parents. So the dominant juvenile, like really is like straight up stepbrother style <laughs> mooching away right mm-hmm. yeah like straight up like not really helping out um they don't breed in their first year at all they just mooch learn how to survive right watching learning um and there was this question about indirect fitness which i thought was really interesting that you know animals the indirect fitness like causing your siblings to to have 80 percent mortality is not in the best interest of the species <laughs> overall, right? So that's so that's a really odd choice. But uh, what they did find with the dominant juveniles is that um, they had significantly increased rates of reaching adulthood um, because of the watching and learning, and uh, and they have way more offspring over their lifetime than ejected juveniles. So the strategy really pays off for the dominant juvenile and they can, they can live like 17 years, Canada Jays. So, you know, this, this can re I know, right. Just, just amazing, yeah. amazing, amazing. Birds, birds are amazing. 
There you go. <laughs> so, uh, so the determination was uh, they had twice the inclusive fitness, basically, of an ejected juvenile, which is which is really quite something. And I think one of the reasons this type of research is so important, and again, shout out to uh, the whole crew there and, and Dr. Ryan Norris as well at the University of Guelph, who's been working in Algonquin doing research with Dan Strickland and others and many, many students. Um, this stuff is actually quite significant because Canada Jays are actually in big trouble. They are a species, they're almost the poster child of the impact of, of climate change on, on, uh, on songbirds, especially these, these northern songbirds in, in North America, right? They're, they're, they rely on cold temperatures for, for food caching. And if you get variable winter temperatures, it means your caches spoil birds don't survive, productivity goes down. And what we're seeing with Canada Jays is that their southern populations are now retreating northward mm. because of this. And it's entirely plausible that the Algonquin Park population it may cease to exist in several decades, right? Which, or even sooner. And that's, to me, that's, I don't know, it's actually rather upsetting. And, uh, but they are a species that is not built for this rapidly changing climate and and that's quite scary. So any type of research like this to really dig down into how this bird survives and how the young survive is really important baseline information to know if we're looking at, you know, climate change impact. So so there you go. Great bird. I guess a question I had about this reading about it is I was thinking you've got the I think they refer to them as the bully siblings. Uh, the bully sibling is able to la you know, latch on to the parents and presumably stays with the parents through the next breeding season. And then at the end of the breeding season, you have these um, ejected siblings that are thrust out into the cold world on their own. And obviously they have a benefit to link up with other more experienced jays. So I guess I was wondering, why do the, do the young not because presumably they're going to be leaving that family unit around the same time as the bully sibling. Do you think that the young just look at the older bully sibling and think, you know, my creepy bully uncle, I would rather just starve to death, like, than hang out with, with the bully uncle? It's a good, yeah, it's a good question. There, there's lots of other questions in there for sure, right? Like the, the, the dynamics of like mm -hmm. staying with a year and then having yet another dominant juvenile. Um, how do the two dominant juveniles relate? Yeah, certainly would definitely will ha happy to follow up with uh, with Matthew about some of this stuff because it's all it's all very fascinating when you get into it for sure. And it's really hard not to anthropomorphize. Because yes. I, I keep thinking say, about yeah. family stuff, and like, you're like, <laughs> "Oh, my sister's the one who stayed close to her parents." I'm not, I'm just not saying she's the bully sibling. Yeah, I'm exactly. They're still in the still in the same town, right? That's why I'm a science communicator. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, yeah. goodness gracious! Oh, actual bird question though. In the article, it says that Canada jays are one of the only two bird species of which siblings fight for dominance do you all know the other one because i was trying to figure it out a trivia question i have no idea i mean it's a good trivia question yeah, it would be. but i don't know the answer because i was trying to figure it out because i know a lot of helper species right but i didn't know i, I don't know maybe a guess is siberian jay right which would yeah be a, yeah like, there's, the there's close two cousin, other species right, right? yeah um okay. but yeah but now we got to find out. Now we got to find out. If you know someone out there, someone out there might know. Please email. <laughs> I also read the rest of the article, waiting for them to say what the other one was. And just <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay. <laughs> See, we're just big nerds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
I'm next to be be bring the vibe up. Bring, bring it up. Bring it up. Brody and Jody were downers. I did not <laughs> mean Sorry to do that. that. Let's talk about a conservation success story. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave everyone with the the happy good vibes. Okay, so I am all in with my yard. Right, it's all about mm-hmm. the yard list and everything. I personally don't want to wait seven to fifty years <laughs> for a really good yard list, though. I'm here for it. You know, I'm invested, but. The birds use all my patience, so I don't have much left. However, Stephen Cress is probably going to win any superlative when it comes to patience um, because Stephen Cress has shown that waiting for the birds is worth it, right? So we've all had this experience where we're waiting on birds and we get really frustrated, whether it's with a chase or waiting for your yard or whatever. And Stephen Cress is here to say, it all works out. So if you haven't heard, it's the 50th anniversary of Project Puffin this year, which is incredible. It is just this, you got to read the book. There's a book called Project Puffin and you got to read it because it'll do such a better job than I can. But ultimately the bottom line is Stephen Cress is amazing and birds are amazing. So there originally 50 years ago was an absence of puffins in Maine pretty much. And Stephen Crest took it upon himself to change it. And he did, which is amazing in terms of just the perseverance and the fact that when you invest in conservation and in birds, it works. So he did all of these experimenting. He jumped through every single hoop you can imagine. And he brought puffins from Canada, actually, to Maine to reintroduce them. And he had to figure out over many years <laughs> how to actually make Maine, specifically Eastern Egg Rock, how it could be this new puffin oasis, basically. So he originally had to figure out how to raise puffins and then release them on the island. He had to figure out how to actually create the little burrows for the puffins to live in, which baby puffins are called pufflings, which is super cute. And he had to figure out how to deal with all of their waterproofing, right? So in a previous episode of the podcast, I talk about your pigeal glands and how they help waterproof feathers. So go listen to that. But basically, Stephen Cress had to figure out how puffins could swim and still be buoyant. He had to figure out how to attract them back to the island, especially because puffins are seabirds, which means they have really long maturity times. Uh, It takes several years for them to reach adulthood and breeding status. He had to attract them back and it didn't work. And he kept defying all of the odds until eventually he figured it all out. He had to create these little puffin uh, wooden models, basically, to act like the puffin party was at the Eastern Egg Rock. He had to come up with exactly the right music or puffin calls to attract them back. Um, And it took all of it to really bring it together. And the incredible thing is that now there are thriving populations of breeding puffins, not just at Eastern Egg Rock, but across Maine. And it's all thanks to Stephen Crest and then a whole bunch of people that worked with him, supported him, and now are carrying on all of this work and the mission of Project Often. The extra incredible thing is that you can go see this. Um, sometimes we hear about conservation successes in far off places or very remote places, 
but you can actually go to Hog Island Camp. Uh, it's part of the National Audubon Society and it's run by Eva Lark um, and an incredible staff there. And you can go and sign up for a week to go birding and actually get to go on a boat and go see all of the puffins along with all of the other incredible seabirds that breed and live on Eastern Nerd Rock now. Um, and it's just this really inspiring story. Again, it shows the success, but then on top of it, because you can't keep going far enough with this, is it's been able to be replicated around the world now and really provide a model for other seabirds and nesting uh, beach nesting birds around the world and helping to bring these populations back, which ultimately, of course, has an incredible ripple effect for positive bird news. So again, definitely highlight the book and then even go to mean and celebrate all of this incredible work. The lasting legacy of this project, this amazing project, has been all the cool work that's been done with other seabirds all around the world. Cahau and Bermuda and a bunch of birds on recently rat eradicated islands in Hawaii and uh, all, all these populations of, of seabirds. It's amazing how this, this relatively simple idea of putting, putting up a decoy and playing some bird calls has been so effective for so many different species uh, all around all around the world, as you said, Jordan. It's just really cool. It's a really cool story and, and a great um, article in, in Audubon about it, too. It, it's a little bittersweet for us on the West Coast because in, in Oregon, there's been a really famous uh, rock, haystack rock, mm -hmm. uh, that where um, tufted puffins breed. And so you can see them from the beach. There's some claim it's like, the only place you can reliably see tufted puffin colonies from the beach or something or in the lower 48. But, um, but yeah, their, their numbers are just going down and down. And whereas I understand in Maine, it was from hunting of the puffins themselves, uh, here in Oregon, our tufted puffin declines are because of the, presumably because of the, uh, the fish that they're eating are declining. And so it, it, which seems like a much more formidable, um, problem to solve They're they're, was a somewhat similar story where they tried to reintroduce sea otters to Oregon. They used to live mm. off the coast of Oregon. And the, so they took some from, I think from the, um, from, you know, much further North in the Pacific and relocated them here. And that population collapsed because again, they didn't have the forage that they needed. Well, a really big theme throughout this entire episode for all of us, right, is food and habitat. It mm -hmm. all comes back to that, right? So unfortunately, you can't just go put a puffin decoy in your yard and have a puffin. You have to have the right habitat for all of it as well. So it really is, again, bringing all of those different components together and then having the party, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so I think I just want to highlight, too, about how Stephen Crest, at least, he had to figure out the right burrows to make and he had to make sure that the island was habitable and do predator control and everything. And then figure out how to bring them all there. So again, then to Brody's point with puff or the tufted puffins, like there is this huge bigger concern because their food source is a huge crux of the problem. And you can't just put, I mean, I guess you could put more fish in the sea, but that's not really the answer. It's very big. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. And my only qualm about the article, which you already mentioned is in the article, they refer to them as puffin fledglings. Which is a huge no. lost opportunity. Uh, yeah, what are you no. doing? A word count, if nothing else. My goodness. No. Yeah. Puff, puffling yeah. is obviously the preferred term. Yeah. That is the best. That is the best baby bird term, isn't it? Puffling. 
Yeah. Yes. Death. Well, Murs have jumplings, which is also uh, oh, that know, makes well sense loved. because they jump out of the off the cliffs well before they are capable of flight, right? Yeah, they also nest on Haystack Rock, and so every year I lead a trip out there to show people the puffins and the murs, and we talk about the the jumplings and the pufflings, and that's just the money maker, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you ever like try to enter jump uh, jumpling into your eBird checklist accidentally, or is it? It's not accidental. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it's one hundred percent intentional. What are you talking about, Jay? You why is this coming up? Um, I, I love I love this story. It's it's like, and there's this other part of my head is like. How do I turn this into a doom and gloom story? But it, it's it's such it's, a wonderful. It's, it's, it's far a, it's too a, easy these days. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a wonderful success story, and uh, um and, and yeah, and like shout out. Obviously, you know there was uh, help from Canadian Wildlife Service in Canada, and and the source birds came from the Whitless Bay Ecological yeah, Reserve outside of yeah. Newfoundland. And Nate, I know you've been there, and it's a lot and, of puffins uh, there. They can yeah, spare a few. Two hundred and fifty thousand yeah. breeding pairs. Yeah, a in few, fact, a few. Um, is just pretty nuts right um and but i think like having creating new populations and reestablishing existing population it is so important for ecological resiliency you Mm -hmm. know whether you're talking about avian flu changing ocean temperatures food shortages like it's so important to be reestablishing populations in areas like this because you know it, it if something if something catastrophic ever happens to the 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 great island population in Whitless Bay, right? One of the most significant, well, puffin populations in the whole world. Um, everything and anything ever happens to that, like we're going to need, you know, other populations elsewhere, uh, you know, to to keep that species going. So just from that perspective, it's it's also you know very very good news story. Sorry, I'm not. I I, I hope I didn't make that a bad news story there. But doom and gloom, <laughs> but like this stuff's important. So important. Yeah. Well done. Jody, thank you for raising that because it's true. I think a lot of folks take for granted why populations are so important, especially when you hear about like an endangered Great Lakes piping plover population, right? Mm. Why does that matter? If the species is okay, then why are we investing in it? But the point about resiliency, about not putting all your eggs in one basket is huge. It's so crucial, especially in this changing world of every single way. We need to have as much backup, as many safeguards as we can, and having those individual populations, which creates genetic diversity, which Mm -hmm. creates their own resiliency alone, is so crucially vital. And I should qualify, too, when I was talking earlier about, you know, the sea otters, there's a new effort that is uh, largely tribal run to reintroduce sea otters that's learned a lot from the previous uh, experiment back in the 70s. And even with puffins, you know, there's uh, one of the, the really cool on the West Coast, one of the things I think is really inspiring is the work being done to create marine reserves to protect large mm-hmm. amounts of fish. Um, so there is some cool work that's being done. And, and obviously we're involved in, in a lot of that. And, and hopefully, yeah, all these strategies combined uh, will help uh, in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you, you talk about this trial and error thing. You know, you, there's so much that can be learned from every single one of these efforts, even if they aren't immediately successful. And I think that's one of the big lessons of Project Puffin as well. I mean, this, it's 50 years. It took it took decades for them to figure out how to get the burrows right, how to get the chicks to stick, how to what calls to use to make the birds want to come back. Like All these things are just another iteration down the road of making it work more seamlessly more effectively and uh, eventually result in you know more puffins it takes a long time to figure that stuff out it takes a lot of patience to date myself do you remember does anyone remember back in the 80s those stickers that said no puffin on them 
<laughs> for the no smoking. For no smoking. Yeah. Yeah. I always thought those were so weird. I was like, why no puffin? I love puffin. Yeah. Who doesn't love puffin? Uh, yeah. yeah. More puffins. And now that legal weed uh, is in Maine, <laughs> maybe Bird Collective can reprise that whole logo thing. <laughs> yeah. Lots of puffins. More puffins, please. <laughs> bit of a tangent. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. All right, this is a good opportunity as any to move on to our question of the month. Um, one of the biggest cultural phenomenons of the summer has been Barbie. The Barbie movie is everywhere. Everyone is going to see it in various shades of pink, which got me thinking, there's a lot of great pink birds out there. And so let's celebrate pink birds that we have seen, that we have not seen, that we want to see. What is your favorite pink bird? It doesn't have to be entirely pink. It can be mostly pink. It can have a little bit of pink. I'm going to, you know, widen, widen the possibilities here as much as I possibly can. Come on, Barbie. Let's go party with a pink robin. Oh, pink robin. Yeah. Pink robin of Australia is my pick. And yeah. especially if you go look at the eBird page right now, amazing picture. Such a good one. <laughs> oh, is it a pink? Uh, I'm going to go look for it. Like the actual species account one, not the homepage. I have to admit, I was quite rude earlier when I asked Jody, does Canada even have pink birds? Um, I apologize. Uh, the because birds are either white or black or gray. Right. Sorry. Some brown ones. Those are the rules. Uh, I, yeah, I apologize because in my mind, I was thinking, so I used to live in Pune, uh, Western India, and we would travel to, to Mumbai to do some coastal birding. And I remember going to this um, jetty overlooking the bay, and there's this flock of 3,000 lesser flamingos mm. that is just like, not like a little bit pink, like a Extremely giant pink, pink bird. Yeah. And, you know, obviously we all know flamingos. I just wanted to give a shout out to the lesser flamingo, which is the smallest flamingo, um, because if they were going to be a Barbie character, they would be like evil Barbie or uh, because they have these red eyes <laughs> yeah. with these a, pinpoint black, hair, black yeah. pupils. Yeah. It's like Marilyn Manson Barbie bird. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just love that contrast. They're, they're exceptionally weird looking and, um, and I love them and I'm sorry, Jody. <laughs> Canada does have pink birds. Yeah, they it's do. true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Unexpected ones. Turns Unexpected out. ones. I, I, I spent way too much time thinking about this for sure. Cause I'm yeah, glad someone did. We did. We don't have obviously, you know, roseate <laughs> spoonbills, the flamingos and that type of thing, but we do have some really amazing pink birds. And so I won't give you the entire list, but like the num the number one, the number one is adult male white wing crossbill. Oh, mm. all right. Right. Yeah. That like is a pink. It you is know? pink. And, it is and that pink. is a wicked, wicked bird. Crossbills are just like, just talking about crossbills. I'm bookending the whole podcast with pop, with crossbill content. Um, yeah, adult male white wing crossbill. Beautiful. What people are asking for more crossbill content. Yeah, well, they it. should Can't because they're the best. Yeah. Crossbills, like, they are so incredible. Beautiful looking, amazing bill adaptations, incredible vocalizations. Um, and yeah, so adult male white wing crossbill. And if you've never seen one, Google it, check it out. Beautiful, beautiful birds. We had a bunch around this past winter. And, and uh, oh, love them so much but we have others and i have to give like <laughs> a, a, a consolation shout out uh, I, i'm trying to guess which one nate is going for um so maybe i'll leave i'll leave gulls i haven't off even this, decided anymore but, i haven't even okay. decided anymore. well no you're gonna give me the gulls all right yeah well <laughs> I, i'll 
uh, there are gulls that are pink, right? And when there I think are, yeah. Ro- Ross's gull, like the famous, not that I've ever seen one. My Scientific gull. name is Rosier. Come on. <sighs> yeah. So, you know, someday Ross's gull will see the pink. But look, one of one of our local gulls here in, in Southern Alberta, they can be pink. And sometimes like slapping you in the face, pink, like incredible amounts of pink. And that's Franklin's gulls. Franklin's gulls can get super pink. And they're gorgeous. Like breeding plumage, Franklin's gull with all the pink. That is one of the best looking gulls. It's a neat, you know? it's a neat bird. Yeah. It, you don't not expect often said, I'm saying people don't people don't necessarily expect a Franklin's gull. A Franklin's gull, a black headed gull yep. to be pink. And yet <sighs> and yet they are. Especially you see a big flock of them. Like I've seen uh seen them in, in Kansas when they're migrating and um you can see big groups of them and it's there's like this little subtle pink wash kind of right along right along the water line when they're standing in shallow water. It's just really cool. I'm going to give one last shout out to, Please. uh, to, yeah. to Hori red pole, Hori red pole. Red pole. Yeah. yeah. Red poles have pink and Hori red poles have like, if you, if you're lucky enough to be up North and you get to see a really nice, um, uh, one with lots of pink on the chest, they, they never have as much pink as a common red pole, but it is absolutely gorgeous. And it's like a perfect, perfect pale shade of pink. Hori red pole. Anyway, so that's my consolation lobby the nacc to not steal one of our pink birds yeah that's right they should instead of common red pole they should just make them all hoary red pole hoary red pole is the better name better description common totally red pole, come on it's boring yeah fewer They're common nothing, birds more hoary birds nothing common about those awesome little finches yeah. they are spectacular anyway there you go that's enough right. of the list wait i have a question for jody yeah is your job boreal is my job no boreal? don't say my joke did my joke totally fall flat? Damn it, from Barbie. <laughs> the whole line is Ken's job. His job oh, is his beach. beach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've not actually seen the movie yet. So oh. I, I was going to wait until it comes yeah. on stream, okay. yeah. streaming. So. I, I, I did see it and I still didn't get I the joke. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing is Sorry. Ken is beach. So I'm saying Ken Jody is, is boreal. Jody is boreal. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently. Yeah, there you go. Someone I has could to do be. that. Yeah. Someone has to be. Someone yeah. needs to be. Someone needs to be. He always. Yeah, that's right. Um, lots of great pink birds that came through my mind. Uh, Brody, you mentioned India. Did you see Rosie Starling in India? I did. Yeah, and in, they're, in they're the classic so murmurations, yeah. like yeah. Of, you know, thousands. Of, yeah, they're they're stunning. I also saw them at pink. dusk yeah. mostly. So yeah, that's a good one. Dark. You don't expect a starling to be pink, and yet there it is. I went to uh, eBird and I looked up in the Explore species, and I just typed in pink. Uh, to get some ideas of some pink birds. There's a lot of them, and some of them are not super pink. Like a uh, pink pigeon is really more of a tan almost, but I guess, you know, there's a line there between pink and tan. Pink cockatoo, you know, also known as Major Mitchell's cockatoo um, in a lot of places. Ebert calls it pink cockatoo. Very pink. Jody, you left me the goal. I guess I could say um, both Ivory and Ross's goal show a little pink sometimes depending on the uh the time of year but i'm gonna go with um i was gonna do pink robin but uh jordan you you took that one from me um but it's a lovely little bird little australian bird that is actually super super pink which is cool uh the pinkest bird i've ever seen uh in real life i guess regularly is uh rosie spoonbill i you know like a rosie spoonbill pink all over very kind of attractive lots of shades of pink but i, I will say 
you know, have any of you looked closely at the head <laughs> of a roseate yeah. spoonbill? Uh, yeah, it is intense. Grotesque, I think is the word. It's vulture-like. It is, totally. yeah, vulturine. It is the weirdest, grossest-looking bird, especially if it's just its head with its weird spoon bill, spatulet bill. That is a. It's. It makes me uncomfortable. Uh, to spend any <laughs> too long uh, looking at it. And I hope uh, anyone who thinks that at a distance, Rosie Spimble, amazing, amazing, beautiful bird, but close up, they are just weird looking. But I guess, um, I guess the pink, pink can go both ways. Oh. Leave the optics at home for that one. That's right. Yeah. I, I love the, I just gonna say, I love the weirdness of Rosie yeah. Spoonbills. I love that they've got these beautiful feathers and then that face. The face, the face of a vulture. So goofy. A face only a vulture could love. Truly. I don't know. Like it was, I, I, I love that combination. I just have to say. I, I think the roseate spoonbills are weird Barbie. Oh, definitely. All right. Weird Barbie. <laughs> they are. Yeah. yeah. And I, I took a photo of one, uh, like a headshot of one with a, a, any pink in it. And like their nostrils are like way down their bill. But it makes their face look like someone made it out of, you know, wax and it melted and it like in Beetlejuice forward a little bit. It's like Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice yeah. and Barbie. That's uh, that's your Rosie Spoonbill right there. Perfect. Say it three times and it'll show up in your backyard. <laughs> Thank you so much, Brody, Jordan, Jody, uh, for joining me and talking about birds, uh, the good news and the bad news. I appreciate your thoughts on all of it. Um, I'll have links to all the things that we've talked about so you can read them yourself and also links to where you can find these great people on social media. It's getting more and more difficult to find people on social media these days because we're all yeah. scattered all over the all over the places. But thank you, all three of you. And I hope you have a great fall and we'll see you next time. Good birding, Thanks, everyone. Yeah, great seeing you all. Good birding. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoyed this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. You get a lot of great benefits, including our magazines, discounts to partners like Princeton University Press, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and more. You can find out how to do all of that at aba.org slash join. I have some special shout outs this week to Karen Fung of New York, New York, Lydia Coker of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Christopher Putney of Washington, D.C., all of whom recently joined the American Birding Association and noted this podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome to the ABA. Technical production is by John Lowry, who has seen a lot of pink birds, but none of them have been Toucan's Barbiet. Social media is by Maggie Fitzgibbon with help from Greg Neese, who were so sure Hot Limpkin Summer was a Barbie marketing strategy and were confused when all the men in the movie were walking normally. You can find us online at ABA.org and on social media most everywhere as American Birding Association, but on Blue Sky, we are at ABA Birds. What does a baby vagrant goose and a Ken in pink sneakers have in common? They're both pink-footed goslings. Questions, comments, come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Bird like Tom, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>